Welcome to the Energetics Exchange podcast, conversations with energy and climate experts. Please note that the information and commentary in this podcast is of a general nature only and does not take into account the objectives, financial situation or needs of any particular individual or business. Listeners should not rely upon the content in this podcast without first seeking advice from a professional. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Energetics podcast series. I'm Matt Sprague. I'd like to begin the podcast by acknowledging and paying my respects to all First Nations people as the traditional owners of the land on which we meet today. Here in Sydney, I particularly acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and pay my respects to elders past and present and emerging. Today, I will be leading a discussion on developments in the world of energy technologies and what they offer Australian business, especially for those with planning underway to meet net zero emissions commitments. Joining me today is Jared Leake. Jarek is the Chief Executive Officer of A2EP, the Australian Alliance for Energy Productivity, which is an independent, not-for-profit coalition of leaders across business, government and research disciplines who are working to double Australia's energy productivity. Before A2EP, he had a long career with Swedish engineering company Alpha Laval and has a great depth of experience and expertise in implementing innovative technology-based sustainability and energy productivity solutions. Hello, Jared, and thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Matt. Great to be here today. And I'd like to start off by acknowledging the traditional owners on the land, which I'm broadcasting from, the Daramurugal people. I would also like to welcome Roger Horwood, Energetics' associate and an energy advisor with more than 30 years' experience advising Australia's largest energy users. Hello, Roger. Hello, Matt. Jared, if we could start with you. Can you set the scene and share your insights into the macro-level trends in energy management for businesses operating in the industrial and commercial sectors in Australia? Sure, Matt. Uh, We see this as quite a time of change within energy markets. The the emergence of uh, more decarbonisation commitments from uh, end users, mainly FMCG, uh, the emergence of of cheap renewables, uh, solar, wind, batteries, especially at that uh, price level versus gas, and and the the emergence of uh, Industry 4.0, where we've seen the, the cost of uh, connectivity coming down dramatically, uh, is having a, a quite a, a profound impact on, on the way energy is, is used and consumed and organised. The main ones where that we're seeing that impact is the electrification and demand management, uh, bioenergy, hydrogen and, and decentralised manufacturing with circular economy and value chains in there as well. So it, it's certainly quite a time of, of change. And uh, yeah, technologies uh, have been, that have been around for many years uh, are now coming to the front because of these changes. Great, Roger. You've driven a lot of energy efficiency and energy productivity programs and conducted feasibility studies to help businesses understand the opportunities presented by these emerging technologies. What have you seen? What has succeeded and what are some of the barriers? Thanks, Matt. Um, I think really the main thing that drives business is, is cost and all of the projects that we evaluate, their clients are looking for how much will it improve our costs or improve our productivity, which in, their, in the long run is the amount of money they're going to make in their business. Uh, regulations and standards um, have been, to some extent, been barriers to uh, some technologies getting into the market, but reality of it is um, they're getting easier. It's getting easier to replace technology with something that's already been approved. Um, so you need to look for that sort of thing. Overall, the the change is coming. It's unstoppable. The businesses uh, which don't move, they'll be t- overtaken by competitors. Uh, the need to get into advanced manufacturing and advanced controls, all of those areas, it's paramount. 
if we're going to remain competitive with the rest of the world. And we need to de-risk our projects. Our projects are seen as risky because there isn't enough information or is that there's a misunderstanding of what, how people look at those projects. Uh, so I think that's another education is going to be important there. And there's going to be, uh, and there is quite a number of government funding programs that are available, advanced manufacturing fund, a modernisation fund sitting underneath that. Um, there's ESCEs in terms of uh, energy savings certificates in New South Wales. There's Veetson scheme in Victoria. And there's a, ways that you can actually save up to 50% of the project costs. Um, some people look at the, the actual, the, um, the carbon credit approach, uh, but generally that's not quite as, as big a uh, benefit to your project, but this, it's worth having a look at. Jared, Roger used uh, an interesting term at the start of this conversation there, um, energy productivity and energy efficiency. How do you see the difference between those two terms and where, does, where are they used interchangeably within business? Normally you'd say that energy efficiency is, say, a subset of energy productivity because energy productivity looks at a, a much wider scope, you know, things like uh, uh, increasing yield, uh, energy productivity is very much about the value you get out of out of uh, energy and maximising that value. I think I think it should be clear that we shouldn't be afraid to use energy. It creates a lot of wealth, but we need to use it very well and very carefully, very efficiently. So uh, historically, energy efficiency has been related to to, to lights and, and and what have you. But it does need to move well beyond that to to much more. Uh, technological sort of developments um, and, and energy productivity working in with energy efficiency for such move, ways to move forward, that they do go hand in hand. We certainly know that when you start talking about productivity or production, um, it makes the, uh, the energy efficiency case much, much easier to, to get through a business and, and get approval. Um, the value of extra production is so much more than just saving energy. So when you can link the two and, and, and give it a bigger business case, that's when we know that energy productivity uh, projects go ahead. That's when we see the, uh, higher uh, value products coming out of the energy used. That's when we see decarbonisation as well. Roger, what are the emerging energy technologies that excite you? I think the key ones in, uh, that are coming along, and in fact already are in the marketplace, is this drive towards improving um, automation, uh, getting more advanced controls, using the cloud to um, to look at the data and, and understand how to best manage your business. Uh, all those areas, I think, are evolving very quickly, and and they overlap very strongly into how you're going to use energy, and um, how how efficiently you'll use it, and in fact, how you can use it to produce more or to make sure that you're running your business as efficient as possible. Electrification is another area that's actually growing rapidly. Uh, the use of uh, technologies such as heat pumps, uh, such as um, even direct use of um, electric boilers. I, I had a customer come to me the other day and actually asked for the price of a high-voltage electric boiler. Uh, this has been considered, um, the drivers being things like carbon gas emissions and also the fact that they're, they're looking towards the future when the cost of electricity may be quite a lot lower than uh, the fuel sources that they're presently using. The other one that's coming along quite strongly is bioenergy, or really the one that I've been looking most at is probably in biomass and biogas projects. Uh, biomass uh, certainly is a cost-effective way to go to replace uh, boilers that are running on high-cost fuels, things like LPG or diesel or other types of high-cost fuels. Um, 
And the biogas side of things is in the food industry. That's been um, taken up quite a lot in the last few years. And that's building anaerobic digesters to process the waste that's coming from your plant and creating a gas stream, which is largely methane, which can be burnt in boilers. And in fact, in a recent project I was looking at, it was burnt in uh, gas engines, produce energy, and also the waste energy was then used for hot water for use throughout the plant. It had an overall efficiency of something like 70 to 80%. It's a very high, a very good way of using a uh, renewable source and also using it very efficiently. I was going to uh, add to that uh, heat pumps. Uh, we're certainly seeing some uh, many, many more favourable cases come out for heat pumps, not just when you're, you're versus LPG at 20 or $30 a gigajoule, but at uh, much lower energy rates as well. Uh, we've done a series of studies with uh, conjunction with ARENA uh, and, and we've seen some, some many, very favourable results there, especially when there's, there's on-site PV where they want to use that PV during the day and so use that to be able to create hot, create hot water that they may use in the evening or over, during the night. Um, that creates a, a very good case for... Uh, electrification and using using uh, heat pumps and, and stop using stop using gas. It's actually using a battery, isn't it? <laughs> it is a thermal battery, uh, a thermal battery at ten uh, percent of the cost of a lithium ion. It's a, it's a good investment. Yeah. Um, so um, the heat pump projects, I know that we are involved in one of them uh, where it didn't come out quite as cost effective as we wanted it, but mainly because it was hard to put it. Uh, to put the equipment onto the site and the storage that we were just talking about, Jared. So, I'm what's um, one of the another application of the heat pump that was actually quite successful, just as in general terms? A couple of the best ones we see is where your heat demand is below that sort of 80, 85 degrees, and you have space for thermal storage. The heat pump technology will typically cost a factor of seven to maybe even ten times that of a, a traditional gas burner or boiler. Uh, so if you're spending that much more on your on your capital equipment, you need to get much better utilisation out of that. You know, instead of uh, sizing such equipment for peak loads, you need to be able to size it for an average load over, say, a 24-hour period, and that gives you a much better return on capital there. Uh, so sites where we see the best potential, uh, things like standalone abattoirs, they have a, a quite a high demand for 65-degree uh, hot water and then some 82-degree hot water for sterilisation. Uh, we also see a very good demand for breweries. Uh, their tunnel pasteurisers often operating around 70, somewhere between 70 and 80 degrees, uh, needing hot water at that temperature. Uh, that's a very good space, once again, where we see potential for uh, heat pumps. Uh, the other one uh, we're spending some time on is on aquatic centres. Uh, we think for uh, natural uh, refrigerants such as ammonia would be ideal for aquatic centres where most of their heat demand is below 65 degrees. And, and when sized correctly and, and allowing for defrost and colder conditions, uh, it can go all the way down to a very cold climates uh, down south, that's for sure. So they're probably the main ones we're following and watching and looking at. There is uh, other things that can make it more difficult because of things like electrical demand, being able to get that enough uh, electricity onto the site and what have you. Um, but there's also a lot of other things that make it much more attractive as well. I mentioned on-site PV, 
uh, I mentioned, you know, LPG, if you're switching from that high fuel cost. Um, there's a lot of uh, a lot of factors that come into play here, um, and uh, so it does does need quite a quite a study to be done to make sure it's the right decision. So I'm sort of thinking that this is um, leading us down the path that says there's specific instances where heat pumps and and maybe even full electrification are going to be um, probable or at least possible ways of going forward to reduce your costs and also to to reduce your carbon emissions. It's, with the fact that um, you want your electricity coming in as green as possible. So it might be as on-site PV or it might be a PVA from remotely from, from one of the big wind farms or solar farms. I don't, I'm wondering just how how far people will go with that type of thinking at the moment. Have you seen any of that, Jared? Indeed. It's a... It's a case of you continue to see uh, information and signals that, that gas price is going to go up. I mean, if we're talking seriously about bringing LNG into uh, Sydney and into Melbourne, we're obviously talking about getting much higher gas prices. As that differential between gas price and electricity price increases, uh, you'll, you'll just see so much more heading towards electrification. Uh, Right now, we see very good cases for sort of up to 90, 95 degree heating. That's here and now. Uh, we, we suggest within a, a few years, that'll be up to 130, maybe even 160 degrees to see that done economically. Uh, there's, there's certainly a pilot scale testing being done in uh, Austria and in, in um, uh, Japan at the moment, up to 160 degrees. Um, so certainly once you get up to that temperature, it really opens up another magnitude of opportunities. I mentioned before, like aquatic centres and abattoirs. Once you go to that above 100 degrees, you start getting into the range of where products are being cooked or dried, and, and that really does open up a lot of opportunities there. So um, those, those high-temperature ones may be a few years away, but, uh, you know, we're not talking 10 years away. We're just talking, I suggest, three to five, where we'll start seeing them more and more and pilots happening there in Australia, uh, and, and that'll give the confidence that people need to move ahead with those. With pilots, Jared, you mentioned a lot of innovation going on overseas. Have you seen anything uh, in Australia that's supporting some of the innovative technologies and, and trying to increase the uptake of them, um, either at a federal level or at a local level? Yeah, so the biggest uh, program at the moment is with ARENA, who's supporting uh, these technologies. And whether that be uh, a covered anaerobic lagoon uh, producing biogas or, or potentially a solar thermal plant um, or, a, or, or a heat pump. So ARENA is certainly into the, getting into that now. Um, there's other uh, uh, ways that this is also being promoted. You've got the uh, largest ever cooperative research centre called the Race for 2030. Uh, right now, they're doing an opportunity assessment, which will uh, dive into this uh, potential for this 100 to 150 degree heating range. Uh, and we expect uh, that to flow on to uh, more studies and funding of small pilots and what have you to test in that higher temperature. Um, uh, that that uh, CRC is up and running and moving very quickly. So I think within uh, 12 months, you can see some pretty serious things happening there. You've also got uh, our, our more progressive governments, I'll say, that uh, state governments that are helping uh, to look at funding studies on this as well. So I think we'll see much more happening in uh, New South Wales and Victoria uh, to try and to encourage uh, this change away from gas and more electrification. 
as well. So, yeah, absolutely plenty happening in that space. And, Roger, we've, we've covered a lot of, I think, industrial technologies in the last uh, five or ten minutes. What do you see happening in the commercial building space that can drive either energy efficiency or decarbonisation over the next two, three decades? Mm. It's a good question. I think the main thing would be that uh, heat pumps once again becomes a, a way of going forward. Um, heat pumps uh, in buildings have been around for quite a while, actually. Uh, the reality of it is that uh, it's not a bad environment for most buildings that require both heating and also uh, cooling, that uh, you've really got a, an opportunity with a heat pump arrangement to uh, recover energy from the chiller system and use that to create any of the heat sources you might need. So uh, I think that probably, I think more advancement in that area, more be better control over that, improved chillers, and, uh, use of compressors in that area. Um, the evolution of, um, I suppose, lighting in LEDs, for instance, has really gone to the point where you're really getting to the minimum levels of energy use in that area. So it's actually a good example of a technology that took off, I don't know, it was only really recently over the last 10 years maybe and it's really only the last five years that it's just dominated the marketplace and and continues to do so now i expect that uh, some of the technologies as soon as they prove themselves to be saving a lot of energy and to be saving a lot of cost and becoming very flexible in the way you can use them i think they start to um take over the market I think the LED case certainly does give you confidence where uh, government-backed programs and incentives is able to get technologies to tipping points uh, where, where you have you, you move things from a technological readiness to a commercial readiness where there's you know, really well-developed supply chains um, and a really competitive supply and innovation coming as well uh, along with that. Uh, if we talk about heat pumps, it's you would say it's not fully commercially uh, mature just yet. There is a, a range of companies uh, out there and they are developing and growing and adding resources. Um, there, there is the service uh, network there um, that can look after the heat pumps, mainly through industrial refrigeration companies. Um, but there's still some gaps in the market and uh, gaps in the in the product range, and and things are not fully modularized to make things as economical as possible. But geez, it, it really has uh, is uh, come a long way in the last uh, ten years with the products that are out there, and uh, I think you know another five ten years of product maturity will continue to see the cost of them come down, uh, the the experience and capability of people to install them economically is going to increase, and importantly. I didn't mention this before, is the ability to integrate um, with other uh, uh, functions and other, other waste heat sources on site. Roger, you just mentioned integrate, like with chillers before, the waste heat from a chiller and integrating that with a heat pump. You know, that, that is really a, uh, probably the fourth key thing uh, to make sure that a heat pump is, a, is effective and efficient is getting a really good, a really good heat source. And, and certainly at things like the abattoirs that I mentioned before. Now, the heat pumps uh, that are going onto abattoirs will be uh, integrated with uh, existing on-site industrial refrigeration plant. Um, and, and that gives it a nice steady flow of waste heat to the heat pump, somewhere between somewhere around 30 to 35 degrees. And at that temperature, now that, that does give you a very good, what's known as coefficient of performance, for the heat pump and, and does really greatly help the economical case for it. 
I think chillers are probably a, an interesting example in both the industrial and the commercial space. So I know you both mentioned integrating them with heat pumps, but in their cells over the last maybe two or three decades, the efficiency of the chillers have improved um, astronomically, really. We're going from old reciprocating chillers to now some of the magnetic centrifugal bearings. The efficiency has gone from a COP of sort of two up to you know, the range of uh, 11, 12 now, some of the top end, top, top end chillers. Um, and the, again, they're becoming sort of business as usual is, is integrating some of these higher efficiency chillers. People are going away from the low capex install cost, considering whole of life costs for their HVAC plant, which can be up to sort of 30, 40% of your building's energy load. Um, so so there's, there's movement there. And I think the other piece is around some of the, the innovation on the compressor side. So those chillers are getting smaller and smaller. People are considering the overall building design, uh, not just using the same old HVAC system design that they've used for 30 years. They're now considering alternative approaches. And whilst that's slow to move in the, in the construction industry, I think there are people out there now thinking um, differently about how they set up their buildings. And I know Singapore has got a lot of standards around different building designs to reduce the overall consumption. Um, and I, I see that flowing through as well over time. Indeed. I and mean, you talk about those improving COPs, you really need to mention things like uh, CO2 heat pumps as well. You know, we've got local companies out of Adelaide called uh, Glacium. You've got Mayakawa's range of CO2 heat pumps. Um, and not only were they produced your hot water, at a COP, you know, potentially sort of five or six, they will also give you chilled water. And as soon as you add that, that chilled water COP and, and the heating COP together, and you might be operating in, in a COP of eight or nine, so that's for every one unit of energy coming in, giving you nine units of, of heating or cooling. Uh, it's an incredible case, incredible case. And especially if you're using uh, on-site solar PV, so the losses that you would have from that solar PV going through to heat, I mean, you just can't match that anywhere else, getting that sort of effectively then 700% or so efficiency. It's, it, it's quite a, a beautiful thermal case, to be honest. That's, that's a good example there, Jared. But the, um, the thing that we probably miss in the beginning of some of these projects is that you really should be looking at the energy efficiency of the overall operation first, understanding how to make that as, as low as possible, uh, sorry, in terms of lower energy use, and then uh, then applying the new technology, and then it'll be correctly sized rather than being sized maybe too large to be cost effective, for instance. Um, I think there's a need to combine the, the thinking of increase your energy efficiency and then apply the technologies when, when they can be at their capital of most effective level. Absolutely. And I think when you look at that, taking that primary energy that you create, and then think of the end-use service, the efficiency of that is what you need to look at, uh, and that's, that's energy productivity. And that's why when you look at something like hydrogen, you know, with, with the, the, the cell efficiency and by the time you store it and use it, you know, you'd be well below 50% from that power that you've come in from the, the solar PV or wind, created hydrogen and then used it, you'd be well below 50% compared to taking that wind or solar straight into a heat pump, uh, running it at probably 700, 800%. Uh, so it's a case of any time you can use a technology like a heat pump, 
you know that you have to go for that. We we are a little bit concerned at A2EP of uh, that that hydrogen may delay in good investments right now while people are waiting for hydrogen to come down. And if they keep on waiting, waiting, and waiting, they're putting off some great investments which can be made today. Yeah. No, I can understand that. It's um, something I, I sort of struggle with sometimes to understand exactly where hydrogen fits, but it does fit pretty, fairly well, I think, within the transport sector and in areas where you have very large uh, renewable power generation, which isn't being utilised effectively at the present moment, uh, that if you can use it, you can use any of that power for generating uh, green, green hydrogen um, and then use it in a transport system, it might make sense. Uh, that is, if you weren't going to use that power in the first place, you may as well use it for generating some hydrogen. Indeed. Uh, maybe that'll sort sort itself out over time, but the, the application of hydrogen, I think, as fits quite well in transport. It doesn't. I don't think it fits so well in, in the industrial sector. Uh, look, I also think there's a place for hydrogen in those very high temperatures, call it plus 800 degrees, uh, alumina, calciners, uh, uh, potentially glass, uh, bricks, uh, cement. There's a lot. There's emerging alternatives and what have you. So I wouldn't wouldn't say it's necessary for cement. There might be some other ways to do that. Uh, but certainly those high temperature applications where you may not be able to get enough biomass or bioenergy to do the job, then then hydrogen is probably the likely uh, likely requirement there. And uh, from from A two EP's perspective. You know, we certainly want to explore and be involved in uh, how to use that hydrogen as effectively as possible because it's highly likely it's, it's always going to be much more expensive than natural gas is, say, today. Uh, so to make that happen, the hydrogen happen, uh, it's all about using that as effectively, efficiently as possible, making every gigajoule uh, count, basically. So, Jared, as we move to an era of cleaner energy sources and distributed energy systems, uh, what role do you think demand management and demand response will play? Yeah, so if we, uh, anyone who looks at the open NEM on a regular basis can see that uh, lovely cycling up and down and, and the duck curve and what have you on those uh, negative uh, wholesale electricity prices we have now. Uh, so, so getting on top of that and, and a lot of energy users acting together in unison and what have you, there's there's a lot to do there. Uh, I mentioned before this race for 2030 CRC, one of their big focus areas is, is to look at uh, uh, demand response and load flexing and, and see how industry can do more there. You've got your big players like aluminium and they're getting ready to, to upgrade their uh, lines so they can do more uh, load flexing. It's, it's not as simple as what one would think. Um, but there's a whole lot of industries which can which can uh, upskill and upgrade their technology so they can do it as well. Uh, cold stores, uh, refriger industrial refrigeration plants, a lot happening in the commercial space. Uh, it, it is going to be crucial and to make sure that we can handle those uh, periods of, of peak load and and also uh, peak supply. What are we going to do there? And that's uh, find ourselves coming back to heat pumps once again. Uh, just say during the middle of the day, being able to soak up some of that extra uh, supply of uh, solar and, and what have you. Uh, heat pumps are a fantastic way to do that. And you could see how you could, uh, that's all the way from residential all the way through to manufacturing to soak up that middle of the day uh, uh, additional solar resource. Yeah, and store the hot water in, in storage tanks quite effectively. Absolutely.
So in conclusion, we know that change is coming. The share of renewables in the energy mix is growing and we're shifting to distributed energy and electrification is well underway. So globally, there is innovation. To wrap up, I'd like to ask you both a question. So what are your top three pieces of advice to business? Roger, can I start with you? I tend to think that the uh, things that I, I, I surprises me every so often when I look back over the years in terms of uh, technology and just how much it's evolved. So I think one of the things we need to keep your eye on the technology, see what's going on in the marketplace, keep your eye open so that you understand when opportunities are coming along and when you can be actually get into a technology that might make you highly competitive. Um, the other area is government funding. It goes up and down like a yo-yo. It's um, one state government will have the money at one stage and it'll be open for a week or two. Uh, then federal government will give us um, open a big, big program and then it gets released in little bits and pieces. So you have to keep your eye on it all the time and you have to actually understand when you've got an opportunity. So it's good to evaluate when you see these programs, how eligible you are for it and whether you've got particular projects available. And that sort of brings out point three, put a plan in place. Make sure you understand what are the things that you want to improve and how you're going to improve them in the future. And then when the window of opportunity comes along, you've actually got something shovel ready, ready to go into the funding program. So they're my top three, Matt. Thanks, Roger. And, and yours, Jared? Top three. We certainly see the best way to get energy productivity moving is having a decarbonisation commitment. And you say, well, okay, how did that happen? Why would that happen? And that often starts with, with uh, marketing. And so that's a marketing department uh, judging where consumers' thoughts and behaviours are at and, and working out if they can uh, uh, have a benefit by making such a decarbonisation commitment. We had a nice presentation from a company called The Lab Strategy last year talking about uh, how marketing can get out there and kick this off. So decarbonisation, and that leads into what Roger's saying, is then having a plan as well. Um, I'd say something as simple also as uh, metering and monitoring. You know, you, uh, everyone knows what it, what is uh, is measured, is managed. Uh, so you, you've got to have that in place and it needs to have a much higher priority with, with spending. And I'm, I'm talking to uh, the, the ones, uh, the accountants and the controllers here, uh, that need to be asking and making sure that that, that budget there is there to be uh, spent on metering and monitoring to ensure that when projects go ahead, um, they've got the right data. And then after the project goes ahead, they can see how that project went as well. Um, and if I could throw a third one in there, I guess it's ownership, ensuring somebody in your organisation is taking ownership. So uh, who is that sustainability manager, that energy manager, uh, giving them that ownership, they'll have the empowerment through your decarbonisation commitment and, and uh, they'll have the data through the metering and monitoring and then, and then you'll really see action. And we're seeing some fantastic action from, from companies that have, have pretty much followed that sort of, uh, those sorts of three things. I'm convinced there are about two or three more podcasts on this topic. Uh, Jared, we greatly appreciate the time you've taken to join Roger and myself. It's been a fascinating discussion. To our listeners, if you have any questions or comments relating to our discussion today, please contact us through our website or your Energetics account manager. Thank you. Energetics Exchange Podcast. Conversations with energy and climate experts.